0: This is Jason Tarwater, and you're listening to the Urban to Country Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Urban to Country Podcast, where we talk to outdoor enthusiasts about life, hunting, and how to make everyday epic. Hey guys and gals, welcome back to the Urban to Country Podcast. I am so happy to have you guys here this week's episode is all about turkeys. I sit down with my good buddy Jason Tarwater and we dive into a variety of topics surrounding turkeys. Jason is a wealth of knowledge on the subject both in his personal life and also in his professional life where he is a regional director for the Wild Turkey Federation. And without further ado, Jason Tarwater. do much of an introduction i i tried on the first couple ones and it was just so forced so now it's just we're <laughs> just gonna jump into it Um uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself who you are where you're from and um I'll
0: just dive right on in yeah so um uh, jason tarwater um currently the regional director for the national wild turkey federation uh cover montana wyoming and alaska um and in short my job is to recruit volunteers um build chapters in in communities to do fundraising events, outreach events, educational stuff and uh yeah, so that's that's a gist of my my job I guess. I'm originally from the Midwest in Kansas. Um this position has taken me to Montana, which I'm pretty fortunate. How did uh, you feel when you first moved to
1: Montana from Kansas? That must have been a little bit of a culture shock.
0: Yeah, it was. You know, I, I have a pretty open mind. I, I traveled a lot with my, uh, with my grandpa as a teenager, so I've seen a lot of the country. Um, I can't remember. I don't think I had actually been to Montana, um, but I had a pretty good idea uh, what I was getting into, and I feel like I'm a pretty good... Uh, Chameleon, you know, I can kind of blend and mesh where I need to and when I need to. So, um, no, it was it's good. I've we've been here three and a half years now and I'm loving every minute of it. Yeah, Montana is a,
1: a great place. Probably shouldn't say that too much on here because yeah, right. everybody in Montana is going to hate me. But I remember the first time I came to Montana, I flew in and then we just kind of drove over to my in laws house and I thought it was cool. The next time I came up, I drove and I drove up I-15 mm. and that drive from about Butte to Helena is just incredible oh, going yeah. through those canyons. Yeah. Yeah. And I was pretty much hooked after that. Um, so talk a little bit about wild turkeys in Montana and what, uh, I mean, people don't usually think of turkeys in Montana. It seems like kind of an odd, odd place for uh, the wild Turkey Federation to be working in
0: yeah so um we have a lot of history here we've been around for a while um you know obviously turkey hunting is not as popular um per se as the elk or the mule deer you know what people normally think of when they think of montana um it's been several years but uh fish wildlife and parks um started releasing birds way back in our trapping and transplanting days um released some here and there and um, it's pretty clear now that there's are certain areas that populations have taken off, um, you know, and, in, in a lot of areas from, you know, Eastern Montana, along the Yellowstone River, uh, central Montana. And, um, you go clear to like the Western third of Montana and there's so many birds they're becoming a, a problem. So, um, I think from what I've gathered, it was a big surprise that they were took off that well. Um, but it's great cause, you know, it creates a lot of opportunity, um, spring turkey hunting can be extremely fun and rewarding um especially if you're an elk hunter and you like talking to talking to the critters when you're hunting them so um it gives you know weather's usually nicer um yeah i mean it's just i don't know it's one of those things you got to experience if you haven't um you know you've been going through a few few years now (laughs) battling the birds um, so... And losing. Yeah, one of, one of these days when it all comes together, you'll be like, oh, that, that, there it is. That's, that's why I've been doing this. I have dreams about it. <laughs> yeah, that's like me and elk. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, the numbers across Montana are good. The, the turkey licenses, um, that have been getting sold, to keep going up every year, so people are catching on. You know, Montana's pretty, uh, pretty generous with their, their tag allocation for, for birds. Um, I Do think over-the-counter now, I don't even know what it is, seven? No, it's more than that with fall tags. Um, oh, it's upwards around ten tags if you wanted to. Jeez. Yeah, so.
1: And is that, um, is that just because the numbers are there? Why so many tags available?
0: It's, it's a mixture of that and the way the state manages the tags. Um. So right now with the general tag, you can use that in – I think five of the seven regions, um, you know, that's like the first tag that you buy. And then you can buy a regional tag in, what, one, two, five, six, seven Okay. on top of that. So you can buy a separate one, separate tag for each region. So there's a bunch there if a guy wanted to travel a lot. And then um, the western part of the state, you've got some fall hen-only tags, just more of a population management Scenario. I don't know if a lot of people are taking advantage of that. Um, They might be buying them just as opportunity in case they see a bird when they're deer hunting or something.
1: Yeah, and that's a really great example. (laughs) And I hadn't really thought about that before, but what you're talking about with all that opportunity is a great example of how Montana really gives you a lot of opportunities to hunt. Yeah. Because I know in a lot of other states, there's not there's opportunity to hunt turkeys, but there's not that much. And I think that's. It's pretty incredible that you have that much.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, even you think like your normal turkey states, you know, in the Midwest or something, some states have a week-long season, and then they take a week off, and then they have a week-long, and they have like four of those, um, and that's it. Um, you know, in, in Kansas we had pretty generous, generous season. We had basically two months, but it was two tags is the most that you could get. Yeah. So, um, no it's nice if a guy wants to travel around the state <laughs> do a montana slam i guess if he had the opportunity to
1: i've heard of guys doing that um that'd be kind of cool it seems like a lot of driving though <laughs> yeah yeah as big as the state is but well and that's cool too that there's that much opportunity that just speaks to the success of the wild turkeys mission um and maybe you can touch on that like you you talked a minute ago about how um there was trapping and transplanting so touch on what the mission is of why of the national wild turkey federation and and how it's been so successful in montana
0: yeah so our our actual mission statement um if you want to go that route is uh, conservation of the wild turkey and the preservation of our hunting heritage um which the second half of that is we are getting more involved with the hunting heritage part um but yeah you know we were we were formed um obviously several years ago in 73 um Along with the other organizations, you know, numbers were down. Wild turkey numbers were down very bad. Um, and guys got together, you know, just like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that I know you're familiar with. Guys got together said, hey, we need to do something about this. Uh, started raising money. Um, and then next thing you know, all these efforts went. I mean, they were trying to raise wild turkeys and release them and, and do all that, which we know now doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they would take – stronghold populations trap a few birds out of them move them somewhere else as soon as they took off you know it kind of to keeps expanding um and yeah i mean it it blew up into the the 80s 90s and even early 2000s um we had an initiative called target 2000 which was to put wild turkeys back into their their native habitat as well as um locating them into what we consider good quality habitat maybe they weren't even native to by the year 2000 um and I think we actually accomplished that it was 2001 I think we we're 2001 or two but um you know because wild turkeys aren't native to Montana um but you wouldn't know that now yeah. <laughs> so yeah well and
1: something that you said jogged my memory on this I've been cutting back on the groups that I contribute to. And it's not because there aren't a lot of good groups out there that I could be contributing my money it's to. It's overwhelming. Though. It is overwhelming. Yeah. And my wife finally said you need to pick, you know, a specific number and, and stick to that. So I was thinking about, you know, who I want to contribute to and my time and my money is valuable. So uh, one of the groups that I will always contribute to is the Wild Turkey Federation. The reason is that you guys have that twofold mission, you know, conservation, of wild Turkey and hunting heritage. But within that, you have a real commitment to, uh, the biology and, and the science. And there's, and not that other groups don't do good things without heavily focusing on that. But I really feel like you guys are able to do quality work because you really focus on that. Can you talk a little bit about where that commitment to the biology comes from?
0: Yeah. So (coughs) You know, we have a just as large as our fundraising side of our organization is. Your banquet was a blast, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Um, This one's one of our our better ones, too. uh, We did really well this year. It was actually the, uh, not to get sidetracked, but it was the largest NWTF banquet um, ever that happened in Montana. That's awesome. And we're good if we get sidetracked. That's what this whole thing is. It's just <laughs> one sidetrack after another. Oh man, I can I can get on <laughs> some on some crazy tangents. But um, yeah. So uh, you know, as big as our fundraising side of the organization is, obviously that's important to us. That's our bread and butter. That's right. How yeah. we exist. Um, we have one of the larger conservation sides as well. Um, every state has a district biologist that covers it. Now some of them cover multiple states. Um, and then like you know there's several examples and like here in montana's we have a district biologist he covers montana wyoming and the dakotas but underneath him we have a western montana um cooperative biologist as well that just literally deals with like the western third of montana um and that's a you know cooperative position with us forest service and fwp cool so So you're actually working with the
1: states. You're not just doing this on your own. You're working with oh, the state. Oh yeah, no. Fund. Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's all through the states. The way we operate is each state has um a super fund is what we call it. Um and that's money that's derived from banquets in that state. And then we have a lot you know, we got a lot of partners out there, whether it's Forest Service, BLM, uh the state, actually State Forestry and um FWP in Montana's instance. Um so we put out a, a formal request for proposals. It says, hey, you know, if you've got projects that need um, some help funding financially, you know, what whatever it might be, submit those. We have a state board that's comprised of volunteers from across the state that sit down with our biologist. And we every state has a tech rep um, that is a, a state employee. So, you know, fish, wildlife, and parks that sits on that board as guidance basically cool and uh all, we all sit to get down together to stay board meeting and say okay we have this much money available these are the projects um and with the guidance of both of our biologists um we figure out which projects we can fund we can't you know and how much um and it's a complete ranking system on you know is it public land is it private land is it you know is it uh going to affect many acres um or just a few and what's the longevity of the project you know is it something that's just going to impact for the next year or two like say a food plot or something like that as opposed to doing uh like our prescribed burning that we do up in the the breaks right you know, yeah that's that's a several year impact just with you know with one fire so um yeah i mean it's re everybody knows resources right now in the conservation world are very limited so you really got to f- focus on um your priorities and yeah that's what we try to do with the money
1: well and just in thinking about where wildlife was 30 40 50 100 years ago um to see any species but also iconic species doing as well as they're doing now is is great and having having groups like yours that are are focused on that is is what we need um there's a lot of people out there that want to do good things they don't have the time i mean joe in michigan who drives a garbage truck he doesn't have time to drive three hours out to public land and do conservation yeah. work but to have a group like yours where he can then kick that money to and and say hey you know you tell the pilot just what to do that's pretty awesome for you jason why turkeys like, what? what is it about turkeys that makes you care about them? Because quite, quite frankly, for most people, like you said, they're a pest. So what what was it about turkeys that, that caught your attention and made you want to commit so much of your time and energy to protecting them?
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. So spring turkey hunting is like a religion um, in April and May so i cut my teeth chasing birds in in northeast kansas um me and a, a good friend of mine i mean that's we lived lived it and so part of it obviously is that um and to be quite honest with you um you know i obviously love turkey hunting but um the nwtf you know the more i got familiar with them um in my previous position um i really liked the way they were going with You know, we have an initiative we call Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt. It's uh, multifaceted. You have habitat stuff that we deal with, and then we have our hunting heritage or Save the Hunt part. Um, And I always thought, man, it would be really nice if all these organizations that were out there, instead of focusing on just the species, would focus on hunting as a whole because it's hard to impact um, what we need to in conservation just focusing on this or that, you know, a turkey, a duck, a deer, an elk. Um and so that's what actually draw drew me to the NWTF was they started looking at things, you know, holistically and um so yeah, I mean that's that's how I got interested in the Turkey Federation. Um when you look at just the turkey and like about the turkey, what, what draws me to it? It the only thing I can kinda draw similarities to now that i live in montana is like when you when you hear, hear that first elk bugle in september you know you get up early you hike in whatever um it's the same way with the gobble i mean it's i don't know there's something about it yeah know? it's it's like it's hard to explain hunting in general like why we do it right it's the same way with with turkey hunting i mean it's uh there's that and then usually you know like we just like we talked about a little bit ago it's a lot more comfortable. Um, yeah, <laughs> you can have, yeah. you can have uh, a little bit more camaraderie with, with buddies. You can chit chat, you know, if you're in a blind with a kid, a lot of times, um, it's a great introduction to, to hunting for anybody, but you know, especially kids, if you you can put them in a blind, give them some candy, give them video game or something to keep them busy, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, man, that first gobble in the spring. And then, uh, it, when it all works, which we'll 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 get that squared away for you. <laughs> How does that work? i <laughs> haven't seen that yet. We got to find different <laughs> birds to chase next year.
1: Not the mountain goat birds we were yeah. going after.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, when you when that bird comes in and commits, and you know you see videos of it all the time, it, it makes me laugh while I'm hunting. Is um, you know, you'll see a bird off in the distance something changes in him and all of a sudden it's that that turkey trot and he just trying to strut but he's running at the same time you know his breath feather, breast feathers are swinging back and forth he just looks so goofy <laughs> but man when he comes in and and uh strutting at 20 yards you can hear him spitting and drumming and dragging his wings across the ground and um we've i've had him Five ten feet behind me, you know, and you kind of know they're there. You can hear them, but you're not sure where they're at. And then they gobble unexpectedly. I mean, it's
1: oh, that's so it's cool. It's
0: like I haven't had a bull elk scream at me closer than 150 yards. So I imagine it's like a bull elk screaming at 20 yards at you. Yeah. But
1: well, and just thinking back on my first time hearing a gobble it was two years ago. Uh, I was looking for an opportunity just. To go hunting in the springtime, and I, I you know I people were like, yeah, you can call them like elk and all the cliches is, oh, is yeah. basically everybody was giving me. So I got a, a crow call and I drove out to where there, I knew there were some turkeys, and I just sat there blowing the crow call for like two hours. And <laughs> I'm waiting and I don't hear anything, and I was like, this is dumb. I don't know why people like this. And the sun had just gone down. It was like that pink like last light. And I was, like, walking back to my truck, and I was like, well, I should try this one more time. So I blew it one more time, and all of a sudden I hear this gobble roll a- across the hills. And it's just, <laughs> like, thunder rolling across the hills, and I was hooked. Yeah. Like, just this chill, like, washed over me, unexplicable. Could not explain why I felt this chill go through me. And I I knew from that moment on that I was going to do it every spring. Yeah. Uh, and-, and I was hooked. And every time I hear a gobble, it's the same way. It's the same way with elk for me too. It's, you know, I cannot explain why that noise makes me feel the way I do, but I I have to go hear it. And so oh, every yeah. spring, like from from that time on, you know, I had I I have to hear that sound. So yeah, that's, I'm there with you.
0: That's that's what does it for me. You know, there's it's not just the the chasing a turkey part of it. It's not the bird itself. It's it's all of that because. You know, I've never fall turkey hunted. Most states have a fall season for management purposes and opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's just they're not they're not talking. You know, like they are in the spring. They're not gobbling. I mean, occasionally you'll actually hear a bird gobble in the fall just randomly, but um, that it just doesn't do it for me unless you're able to to talk to them. So,
1: yeah. Did you listen to the mediator podcast where they talked about all the different? noises that'll make a turkey gobble
0: no i haven't i got it downloaded on my 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 podcast phone. i have a separate phone for podcasts since i travel so much um but i have it downloaded i just haven't had a chance to listen to it yet
1: yeah so this uh this spring was the first time that something other than the normal you know crow call owl call i i coyote called Mm -hmm. just because someone said try it and i tried it and I got a dang turkey
0: to gobble uh, back. Oh, yeah, man. It's been uh, – I've had car horns, car doors, trains, um, believe it or not, peacocks. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, the The wildlife area that I used to manage in Kansas, there was a, a neighboring property that had peacocks. And I would turkey <laughs> hunt close by there. And those peacocks would scream in the morning. Those birds would just hammer. Um, and I don't think there's any – nobody can figure out why. You know, it's like any loud noise. Um, the only way I can ever explain to it is, like, a, a roided up guy at a bar <laughs> that is just looking for something to, to get a reaction, you know. So, like, the wrong person looks at him or the wrong person touches him.
1: Somebody drops a glass in the back of Yeah, room. he's just
0: going to freak out on somebody. So that's, that's, like, the only thing I could ever <laughs> compare it to. Um, but it is funny what you Thunder... My favorite time to hunt in the spring is if you have a thunderstorm rolling, you know, obviously, like, a few miles away, and it's not going to get you. Man, every time that thunder, <laughs> they're just – they hammer nonstop. It's awesome. Uh, so, uh,
1: turkeys, they gobble. And then what are some of the other sounds that they make? Because I, I hear guys throw out these terms, but what – there's gobbling, and then what else? What are the other sounds they're making?
0: Yeah, so um, there's a yelp, and – I didn't even think about it. I could have actually brought some calls with, him. <laughs> but um, no. So, uh, like for a beginning turkey hunter, um, usually what I tell people if you learn one call, learn the yelp, and that's that's what that six seven, um, oh, what am I what am I trying to say here, um, that normal cadence that you you usually hear from a hen. Um, now toms and jakes they will yelp. It's a little bit deeper. Usually in the spring you don't hear it nearly as much. Um, but there's a yelp. Um there's a purr um that that I use a lot when a bird might be hung up or he's getting closer and you want to get quieter um get him that few extra steps that you need to um there's what I call a a cut which is um just a little bit more aggressive it's just a real sharp single note but I'll mix it in to my calling um, sometimes I could just get really excited with the cuts, just to get that shot gobble effect to try to locate a bird. Um,
1: What's shot gobbling?
0: So that's like when when they gobble to anything, like we we're just talking about. Okay, that that's just what is termed, I guess, shot Kay. gobbling. Gotcha. Um, so there's a putt, which the putt and a cut is sometimes hard to distinguish. The putt is real sharp, but it's a little deeper um that's a uh, their alarm alert call um so like when you're hunting you hear a putt that's not a good thing <laughs> it's like when a whitetail snorts at you right um or an elk barks at you i guess so um there's that and usually that when when somebody's hunting and if a, you get a tom to come in and he's everything's going good and all of a sudden you hear a putt that's when i'm like if you can shoot you better shoot now because he's not going to be around very long um, there's a key key run which <laughs> um I can I can do I just actually this year started doing it on a call um and that's just that little that like as they're lots that's pretty good when they're milling around yeah. um and thanks to YouTube you, anybody can look all these up now but um
1: yeah and I'll link to some of these videos we'll get some yeah. videos from you and we can link to them
0: but um so that kiki run that's more of a like i'm a i'm content um Mm. in the fall a lot of guys use it for it's uh um basically like a call to congregate the birds back into a flock it's a flocking call so um yeah i mean there's several different sounds none of them sound the same they all sound different everybody um freaks out about it's like elk calling and bugling you know yeah Oh, that, that's a little too high pitch. That's a little too raspy, not raspy enough. Um, none of them sound the same. Yeah. So that's what I always tell people. Just do your best. And the best thing to do is go out, and if you can find a flock, like in the fall, they get flocked up really big, kick back and listen to them.
1: Yeah. You know? That's great advice. And I think, too, one of the things that people don't give enough credit to is it really, the sound is important, but it's the attitude yeah that you've got when you're calling yep. and i know that sounds ridiculous but for whatever reason it works like if you if you put the right attitude into it that is probably 70% of the battle yep. in getting an animal to respond to you and i just think it's so cool i mean calling elk calling turkeys you are you're communicating with these animals and that's i mean It's every, every kid's dream, right. To be able to talk to their dog or whatever and hunters get to do it. I mean, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, you touched on, uh, taking kids hunting and that's something that you guys are pretty big on, right. Is getting, women and kids into the outdoors. Can you, is that part of the, the hunting heritage program or is that a different initiative?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's still part of save the habitat, save the hunt. That's just the save the hunt part. Um, and in our organization, we have, we have a hunting heritage department, um, we've got some hunting heritage coordinators out of our headquarters in South Carolina. Um, but we've got, um, a Jake's program, which is, you know, our youth program It's 17 and under, they actually, we have a Jake's membership, all the, you know, the kids, they get a membership. Um, and with that, they actually get their own magazine, which is really cool.
1: That is cool. Um,
0: it's a quarterly magazine, but, kids get anything in the mail and they get excited yeah no for sure um and it's got some some good information in it um so we we have that and a lot of our chapters you know that's outside of a banquet that's what they do is they do a jake's day or some type of youth educational day where we've got inflatable bb gun range that we'll we'll set up that's that's really neat um that's cool it's even funny funnier because the parents start trying to get in on it oh of course and <laughs> but um we've got youth archery equipment we've got um what else do we have um, a lot of times we'll call other you know organizations uh we've partnered you know on a lot of these events with like trout unlimited hey can you come teach fly casting um fly tying that sort of thing um a lot of our events we'll get the local game wardens involved um try to get kids introduced to the law enforcement side of things in a positive manner. Right. Um, So, I mean, it opens up, you know, and then obviously you've got your real young kids and then a lot of, some of our events, you know, we cater towards the teenagers where we do some live firing with 22s, go out to the trap club, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then we have a, um, depending on how you want to pronounce it, I call it a widow program. It's women in the outdoors. Mm. Um, some people pronounce it widow. But, um, Weedo sounds better. Yeah, Wido does <laughs> sound better. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we kind of did, we set up similar events. We just catered towards women. Um, you know, we did one, a pretty good one down in Livingston, Montana, a couple years ago. Um, and we had, um, a bear specialist come in to teach ID between black bears, grizzly bears. Um, we had a guy, actually, one of your guys' volunteers, John Salazar. Oh, yeah. Um, did like a empty your backpack type of a display um for if you're going backcountry for multiple days and that was really neat because um there was some ladies there that had never even thought about going especially overnight going into the backcountry and they were paying really close attention and um you know afterwards they were talking about like they were now going to go buy some gear, and that's what the, their goal was to just go spend an uh, overnighter. Nice. you know, in the backcountry. That's cool. So that that was pretty neat. But um, you know, we'll also we'll we'll teach handgun training. Um, some do certified concealed carry classes as part of their events. Um, so yeah, I mean, we get into all, all kinds of things that way. And then yeah, we we'll set up hunts, um, youth hunts. This year we took a kid on his first turkey hunt over by Missoula. Um it worked out really neat. We had actually some private land set aside that we were going to hunt. Well, they were flooding real bad down in the Bitterroot Ooh, yeah. in the bottom this year and um it had the birds all messed up and most of the ground we could hunt on was flooded. So we kind of um got a plug on X maps for a, a minute because we literally got on our phones and was like, "All right, where's the closest public ground that looks That's good?" so awesome. And we uh we found a chunk Pretty good sized piece. Um, it looked fairly good habitat wise, just from an aerial photo. And uh we uh it was um three of us and then the kid started hiking and we got in about a half mile and a bird answered. This is, you know, midday. Um and he was across the fence line on private ground. So our you know, challenge was getting him across and um we worked that bird calling him and he was answering everything but he just wasn't moving. Hmm kind of like what me and you experienced except no we experienced the opposite he was going the other way yeah he was running <laughs> but um no it was like an hour hour and 15 minutes we probably talked to this bird we actually repositioned once um and finally got him to come in and what happened was we got another bird fired up that was answering us and i think that changed the first one's attitude and was like oh there's competition here yeah and he just I mean, it didn't take him long at all to get there um and it was really neat. There was a big rock outcropping right in front of this kid at like 25 yards, stuck up out of the ground, and this bird come over a hillside. like You can hear him coming just from his tone. Mm-hmm. And he literally was strutting and jumped up on top of this rock, oh. uh, full strut, and got up to where he could see because that's what they'll do is they'll, I think there's a hen here, so I'm going to get where I can see um and stuck his head up looking around and it was great opportunity i mean head his head stuck up the kid just put a perfect shot on him um ended up being a very big old bird too so it was uh it was a great bird that's cool but um so that was his first turkey um and then you know we've got chapters all across the country that are putting on youth hunts we they work with the state agencies local you know sometimes local refuges um wildlife areas that sort of thing and then um yeah and then this year we took uh in wyoming we were able to take two wounded marines wounded veterans um turkey hunting one got his first turkey the other one i think it was his second bird that's cool on the same day so no yeah it's um, it, for us it's it's a lot more than just raising money to put back in the ground you know we've got that that outreach side of things and um just as much as turkey hunting you know we've got chapters well here in Helena our Helena chapter last year did a youth pheasant hunt nice. um took some kids pheasant hunting and we've been working on some whitetail hunts trying to get some whitetail hunts lined up um you know it doesn't matter, for us it doesn't matter if if we're introducing a new person to hunting it doesn't matter if it's a turkey or a deer hunting or elk hunting or whatever it is um heck like we could probably have a lot of fun with prairie dog hunting yeah um <laughs> especially in montana yeah Jeez. but uh i mean it, it doesn't matter to us it's hunting's hunting you know yeah. that's that's our ultimate goal is to get more people involved in the outdoors and why that commitment well i mean i i would like to say most hunters you know no license sales funds most of you know your wildlife conservation and then uh you know you got your Pittman robertson act and, and that sort of thing but i have found out over the years there's really not a lot of um license holders that understand that completely but um you know we we've been given a pretty good resource um pretty good opportunity um and that's all been paid for and protected conserved um primarily through hunting license sales and um, the Pittman robertson taxes on firearms and ammo and that sort of thing and so we don't have folks that are interested in hunting They're not going to care about the wildlife, um, or if they're not interested in shooting or anything like that, they're not going to, um, help fund any of it. Um, you know, stuff just doesn't happen. Habitat work just doesn't happen. You know, I think a lot of people think it does sometimes, but, oh yeah, um, it's expensive. I mean, we had a meeting, um, we had a state board meeting in Wyoming last weekend. They were talking about some forest management stuff that was costing up to $1,000, $1,500 an acre. Jeez. Um. And that stuff's got to be done because if we don't manage our forests of the west, you know, we've been watching them burn up every year. You know, it's just going to keep getting worse. And so, yeah, you know, that stuff, it costs a lot of money. But in the long run, it's worth it because you still have it. It's not causing wildfire and burning down houses and stuff. So
1: Yeah. Well, and a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand that. We don't have the luxury of letting the forest manage itself anymore. We've encroached so far that the land doesn't have the space that it needs to manage itself. So, yeah, back a 1,000 years ago, you could have a forest fire, and it could burn through the land, and it would do what it needed to do, and then it would regenerate. Now we have cities and towns, and if you just say, oh, yeah, the land will manage itself, well, it will, but then there's going to be adverse effects to people
0: yep fire. fire is uh um you know it's a natural thing on the landscape naturally occurring we've just become really good over the last hundred years of suppressing fire yeah um because we don't want to burning in certain areas or we don't we never knew what its effects are well we're finding that out now i yep. mean, when you can't even hardly walk through a forest because it's so thick I mean, it doesn't take much for that to to light up and burn. And those fires are so aggressive that you can't even do anything with them at that point.
1: Well, and not to hate on older generations, I guess this isn't hate. This is just kind of a fact that we didn't understand that suppressing forest fires that eventually we would reach a tipping point. And so now we've kind of reached that tipping point where we do need to actively go in and manage certain areas of, of the forest. Um, Yeah, and we just went down one of those rabbit holes that we were talking (laughs) about. Um, One of the things that I was thinking about, too, as we were having this discussion about, you know, uh, hunting heritage and bringing new people in, I think it was one of your ambassadors, Jana Waller, who said that it was something like 70%, if in families where, where the mother hunts 70%, of the the children will continue to hunt after, yeah. and I'm I'm really messing up her quote there. I
0: think I think what it is is you know in families where just the father hunts, it's it's basically a fifty fifty if the kids are going to participate in hunting. Um, in families where the uh, mother hunts, I actually think it's more upwards of ninety to a hundred percent of the time okay. those kids are going to partake in hunting. Um, I mean, and you think about it, it it really makes complete sense because traditional hunting has been the guys take a field you know the wife stays with the kids mom stays with the kids fathers come back that sort of thing but times are changing um and you know people are more concerned about or getting more concerned about where their food's coming from you know i've i've talked with a lot of females whether they're married have kids or not but i mean that's what they want to know. I mean, they want to be able to provide for themselves or their families just as well. So, well, I think too, there's
1: something innate within us to where hunting is a familial activity. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you, if you read, you know, the, the, the studies that they've done of ancient man, it was the whole family would go out and they'd hunt together. And I think there is definitely something that, that is, um, the the ties that bind us together are strengthened when we go out and and we hunt and kids feel that when when it's not just dad but it's mom and dad yeah you know involving them And that it really sinks in and sticks um in a way that it it doesn't if just you know dad is taking them out and doing it um and i think that's Im- i think that's important that if we want if we want hunting to continue that we introduce the next generation, but it's not just for the sake of hunting. Um, you talked about the Pittman Robertson act. There's, you know, a lot of studies coming out now that indicate that there's not enough money being generated by Pittman Robinson alone anymore for hunting to continue. And so, um, with the numbers, the way they are now, if, if we don't recruit more hunters, you know, eventually we're going to not have enough money. So two things need to happen. We need to recruit more hunters and we need to start holding other outdoor recreation users accountable for paying for, you know, the land that they're enjoying. And I think your, your initiative, this, you know, our, our hunting heritage and, and getting kids and, you know, other underrepresented demographics involved in hunting are really important steps to rectifying that, uh, That shortage in the
0: funding yeah no absolutely I um you know and just me personally my opinion on it is um and I'm sure there's people that'll disagree with my opinions because it happens all the time (laughs) um we've kind of I think and and not just NWTF but like the hunting community as a whole all the organizations we've kind of beat the horse on on the, the youth events and You know, every organization has some kind of youth membership, and that's like what we've always preached. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Right. You know, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Well, we obviously haven't affected future generations enough to make up for what we're losing on, you know, the older demographic. So I've always thought we would maybe, maybe not, but we would be more efficient if we focused our efforts more on getting the, the women involved, because to me, if you've get, you know, a, a woman involved in hunting, whether she has kids now or will have kids in the future, right then and there, you've already affected two generations. Now you don't have to worry about her kids because yep. she's going to go ahead and recruit them as hunters. Um, and, you know, you can have a youth event, you know, I, we, we see it at ours, too. Um, a lot of the families that are bringing their kids to those youth events, a lot of them are already involved in the outdoors. Those kids are probably going to get involved in hunting, shooting, anyways, just because that's, that's their family. Um, it's hard to target those individuals that um, won't have that opportunity later in life. And if you do, you know, they're in their teens maybe you know maybe 12 10 whatever it might be well they can't just go support themselves and start hunting the next year it takes several years of mentorship by somebody right um whereas if you get a young adult you know in her 20s or you know early 30s or something get them interested well more than likely they've got a job where they can support themselves by a license by ammunition by gear you know that sort of thing yep so i think the effectiveness would be um a lot higher if we just more focused on younger adults instead of yep really young kids
1: yeah and i think i mean obviously the most important part of this is that we be an inclusive community that welcomes anybody who, who wants to uh you know take part in this you know this heritage um it's, it's available for everybody but there are definitely i mean getting getting a uh, a young lady or or someone from a different uh ethnicity or culture to stand up as a spokesperson for hunting that that speaks way louder than me as a middle class white dude Getting up and talking, and I love middle class white dudes. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think I think we've we've walked this really dangerous line where we were slightly exclusive for so long, and now there's there's an understanding, not just in hunting, but in in lots of different areas in in life, but especially in hunting, that you know that's selfish and that needs to change. And I, I really applaud you guys for, for taking the lead on that in the the conservation community. That's pretty, that's pretty awesome that you guys do that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'd like to say we're taking the lead on it. I feel like we are actually taking the lead. I mean, our, our CEO, um, she's been on about a year now, Becky Humphreys. um, man, she's passionate about, about that stuff. I mean, she's not, I mean, she's passionate about turkey hunting and and everything, but, um, we see, we definitely see the big picture. Um, and it's, it's funny you mention you know, what you did because, um, have you ever seen the, the video series that's been coming out called Blood Origins? I've heard of it, but I haven't sat down and watched it. So it's, it's a pretty cool series. It just highlights like an individual, their hunting background, how they got hunting, that sort of thing. Well, one okay. of the first ones I saw, um, was about, um, this lady her name is joanna dart she took up hunting um you know and and it's funny you talk about highlighting that because we actually have she was part of that video series and we actually just hired her as a hunter recruitment r3 coordinator um so which is um, recruitment retention and reactivation of hunters cool um so she works for us now in the upper Midwest and that's what her job is, is to recruit other hunters. Um, and I think what we'll find is she will be extremely successful at it because she's not your middle-class white dude. Yeah. You know, just preaching the story like we always have been.
1: Right. Well, and it's, it's different, right? So we think when you think of, a hunter there's this stereotype that automatically pops into your head, and when you get someone who is a passionate advocate for hunting and in, in the outdoors, it catches your attention yeah. it really does, and that's that's phenomenal and you know i i'm a a firm believer that uh you know you every person is important because every person is different, and I'm going to have an impact in this, on this world differently than, you know, my next door neighbor, not because I'm, I'm anything quote unquote special. I'm not a celebrity, but I, I am different and I'm going to have a different impact. And, and I think it's the same way as we talk about these hunting advocates that, uh, a different voice is going to impact different people differently. And, and so having that diversity is really
0: important. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about connecting with somebody.
1: Pivoting off of that, for a second um and talking about uh you know still talking about hunting but pivoting off of that just a little bit what advice would you give to somebody who is new to hunting so john comes up to you and says jason i've never hunted before where do i
0: start what would you tell him oh man um this is gonna sound really bad but don't watch primetime outdoor TV.
1: Ah, uh, such good advice. <laughs>
0: um, there's some good shows out there, but. Which, just, yeah, I was going to say. I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. dog them all, but um, that's probably just not where you want to start because that will really make your dreams and expectations really high. Um, but, well, I, you know, most communities have some type of local sportsman's group. Um, a lot of them have a nonprofit organization such as the NWTF um you know most of our volunteers are passionate about turkey hunting and taking others and getting others involved um so i mean i think that's a really good resource to start with um i think more and more you're starting to see these um these little educational days pop up whether it's nwtf wildlife federation you guys do a bunch um you know i think there's good resources there um and to be quite honest with you the this podcast platform um not just this one in particular um but there's a lot of good ones out there yep um you know when we started elk hunting we're flatlanders from the midwest <laughs> f- freezing our brains off in tree stands um it was a whole different ballgame for us and so there's a lot of podcasts that since i'm on the road 60,000 miles a year i right. get a, a lot of podcast time and um I learned a lot from it. And I tell you, um, that bull that, um, uh, Danae, my fiance, was able to kill last season that had a lot to do with, you know, having the right gear. Cause the weather was, well, you were in that area.
1: Yeah. It was <laughs> nasty.
0: Yeah. Um, we got dumped on snow. It was cold. It was crappy. And we were backpack camping in spike camping. in, so, I mean, a lot of that had to do with podcast and just doing research. Um, that way, so there's a lot of good information out there. The problem is, is there's a ton of information, and it's hard to channelize the good information when you don't really have an understanding of what you're looking for, anyway. Yeah, um,
1: I had three thoughts, so I'm going to try to keep them <laughs> organized. One, your point about uh, uh, cable TV hunting shows was really good, and I think it was. I think what made it good was. In a TV show, you have 21 minutes to show a, in a month's worth of work oh, yeah. and effort. And I think, w- at least for me, when I first started, I started watching like the stereotypical cable TV hunting, and I had this misperception of, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to shoot something. And and now that I've you know been hunting for the last five years, I can sit down and watch those shows, and I know the backstory. So if you're a new hunter, it's not that those cable TV shows are necessarily bad or the YouTube shows or whatever it is that you're watching. It's not that they're bad or you shouldn't watch them. Just take it with a grain of salt and know that there's a ton, a ton of work that goes into making that 20-minute episode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I already lost my other two training of thoughts. (laughs) Oh, so the other one was you're your fiance Danae's her bowl. We're going to have to do another podcast just on that because, <laughs> and that's a teaser because we're, we're going to do that because that is a amazing story
0: that, uh, yeah, we can, we can definitely do that. Um, that's what we did. The the, one of the podcasts that, uh, that I've done was our Turkey Federation podcast. And I think, uh, Fred, my coworker that does that, I think he really wanted me on there just as an excuse to get her on there <laughs> to talk about her Oak. Um, no it's a it's a cool story um it's it's cool coming from well from i think both of our standpoints but from hers especially
1: yeah and yeah there's just there's it, it's such a cool story, and I don't wanna do it a you know an injustice by having to cut it short but yeah
0: no it, it was the it was like the epitome of what you what you see on a twenty one minute yeah you know show, but it was a, over a course of like four days so. yeah
1: it's yeah, it was an incredible story. So we'll have to we'll have to have her on with you and and tell that story because it's pretty cool. Yeah. And then oh shoot, I don't remember what I was going <laughs> to say. Oh well, I'll move on to another question I had for you. As we talk about getting people into hunting and, and starting hunting, um, what's like the number one piece of gear you suggest to somebody? So you've you know you gave some good advice for you know get involved in hunting clubs and that's definitely where I would start is is find some local mentors, but money's tight, you know, where would you direct somebody to spend their funds?
0: Oh, man. Um think that is specific geographically. Um, you know, if you're going to do, like, elk hunting or mountain hunting.
1: Let's talk elk hunting or turkey hunting because I think the gear yeah, translates uh, fairly well for the two.
0: Yeah, uh, boots, hands down. Um,
1: you read my mind. I have... Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I've had I have issues with with cold feet. I've never been able to figure it out. I don't know what it is—poor circulation or whatever. Um, so this year, my mount, my hiking boots or my hunting boots for the mountains, and even my tree stand boots for when we go back to Kansas, I dropped probably too much money on. But man, I was comfortable as could be. Yeah, um, that's a probably the first thing that'll ruin. I, it won't necessarily ruin your hunt, but it'll ruin your mindset, and it'll. Have you given up early, getting back to the truck early, going to camp early? Yep. You know, if your feet are uncomfortable.
1: You know, I really hate those guys that are just so mentally tough that they can just go out there in, like, the work boots, the steel-toed work boots and, like, the Carhartt pants. Not me. I'm not that tough. So there are some people that can do that. If you're that person, (laughs) I hope you've identified that, and then you can save yourself some money. But I would agree with you. The first thing I would tell somebody is get yourself a good pair of boots because if your feet aren't happy – you're not going to be hunting for very long, whether that's because they're tired or or they hurt from hiking around or you're cold or too hot. Um, And give me your feedback on this. When I, when I think about boots, I would, I would recommend either uninsulated or the lower insulation for your first pair of boots, just so that you can kind of play with the temperature a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what I did. You know, like I said, I get really cool feet, but i was also knowing that we were going to be moving around and hiking a lot and that sort of thing so um what actually both of us ended up buying was the kinetrex uh the uninsulated kinetrex um they're the mountain extreme yeah um and they're pretty warm in general but you know like you said it's kind of like clothing you can always you can you can add layers um i always wear a liner sock and then either uh, just a hiking merino wool sock or, you know, when it's cold, I've got a thicker one that I keep in my pack. Um, but I kind of elk hunt and turkey hunt similarly where I'm not sitting around for a heck of a long time unless I need to be if something's coming in. But yeah. I'm a run and gun type of person, so I'm moving around a lot. My feet don't get really yep. cold that way.
1: And I think – if you're doing a, a kind or a type of hunt where you need something more than what you and I just talked about, it's probably a very specific yeah. kind of unique hunt where maybe you're going to, I don't know, Mongolia and hunting in the mountains there. Yeah. And then you're going to be buying, like, your budget's going to be huge yeah. for that anyway. Yeah, but I'll, we're talking I'll like, i understand that. We're talking like <laughs> the average hunter who's going to do some deer hunting, maybe some elk hunting if they're out West, Yep, go with the uninsulated boots. And I think, If you're out west, Kenetrex are hard to beat. Crispies are hard to beat. If you're, you know, somewhere else, I'd look at Danner's. Um, Although they're coming out with some mountain boots now too, Danner's. that are are pretty serious.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of companies coming out with some good, lightweight um, hunting boots. I I think there's a a line that you cross from just a hunting boot to a mountain boot though Mm. with stability and support. Um, Yep. Because I can tell you right now, you know, I, my Merrill tennis shoes that I have on right now, I could hike around in the mountains all day long with them, but as soon as I throw a pack with 50, 60, 70 pounds, it's a whole different ball game. Yep. Um, not just support, but, you know, the arch of your foot. You know, I ended up with, uh, when I first started trying to get myself into elk shape, um, I didn't have my boots yet, and I threw a pack with 50 pounds on and started hiking around in <laughs> my Merrills. And it was just flat ground. But I ended up getting like a, Minor case of plantar fasciitis because mm. um, so much pressure on the arch of my foot. So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, time to invest in some good boots for this.
1: And this is where it goes back <laughs> to to making those connections and and getting advice for some folks because you can talk to your local, you know, people at NWTF or you know your local round gun club or whoever it is. If you made some friends there, you can then say to them, "Hey, I need to buy a pair of boots. What do you suggest?" And they can give they can steer you in the right direction. Yep. So, well, I just got a couple more questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, and then we'll get you out of here. You've been on the road a lot. Your your uh, fiancé's got to be missing you.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm home um, five days, and that's this week for the entire month. <laughs> I'm getting ready to uh, Sunday. I fly up to Alaska for two weeks for some recruiting, and then um, I'm attending – Representing the organization at the International Hunter Ed Association very cool annual conference. So
1: nice, busy. Yeah, well, stay busy. Keep the turkeys.
0: Here. Yeah, no, busy's good in our world.
1: So, uh, just to wrap up, here are the questions I like to ask everybody: What is the thing that you're most excited about in your life right now? Which I just realized is kind of a loaded question, <laughs> given what's coming up for you.
0: Um. Yeah.
1: Let's put aside the wedding. <laughs> okay, you don't have to say the wedding. Today <laughs> he's excited about the wedding.
0: No, I mean it, it's tough for me because I mean you probably know just from social media stuff, man. I, I'm excited about a lot. Like, yeah, you are. I'm a. Uh, I I think we we take it for granted. We take a lot for granted. Um, you know, I'm excited just to wake up every day and go to the gym or get some work done, hit the road, go see some volunteers. Um. Obviously, yeah, I've got a wedding coming up in November, so um, that's at the top of my <laughs> priority list. Um, you know, if this was after next week when I draw that sheep tag that I've been trying to get for a couple of years oh, now. Oh, yeah, um, that sheep
1: tag you're well, going to draw.
0: That'd be uh, right up there with the wedding. <laughs> close close second. Um, no, nah, man, I, I don't know if there if there's one thing in general. I mean, I'm pretty excited about where our organization is, is headed right now. Um, yeah we're getting involved with a lot we're impacting a lot there's a a ton of positive energy at all of our staff meetings our national convention we just had in february had another record-breaking year we had fifty six thousand people that that attended um all of our fundraising it was up i mean there's just you can just tell like our organization right now um we're we're making an impact we're going places and it's uh it's cool to see
1: yeah, you, man. You hit the nail on the head because I feel kind of the same way. Like, there's definitely some things that I'm a little bit more excited about. Like my outcome coming up in the fall. That's gonna be pretty sweet. But you know, when life when life is good, every day is exciting. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what's something you're you're interested in learning about in the near future?
0: Hmm. I would, I would say um, I had to prepare for a long run, but I did that one. You
1: did that one. You crushed that one. Yeah. Um, w- what was your time um, again?
0: Two hours and 13 minutes. Nice. That was just a half marathon. Um, just a half just, marathon. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you're running a half marathon and there's people that are finishing a 100-miler that started <laughs> 25 hours before you're getting ready to start, you're kind of like, oh, this yeah. is just to just walk in the park <laughs> um but no that was cool you know that, that's a that was a mental game for me but uh that's uh, very cool it was cool um something i would like to learn about man you know honestly actually right now um videography and editing um you know i just bought that video camera a few months ago um packed around all my turkey hunts this year and some and some other places and I, i've got a whole heck of a lot of uh scenery footage <laughs> <laughs> my turkey season didn't pan out very well um shouldn't say that i just didn't film any tags but um yeah i i think probably videoing and and editing just because i think there's just a lot of potential um to reach out to people by using yeah. that stuff um I mean you're st- we're starting to see it every day now. I mean there's more and more people that are producing videos and hunting shows and and things that are just for social media purposes and yeah um but um no I th- that that probably that's probably it, you know. If I had time to sit down and really learn how to edit more, I could do something with the hours of <laughs> footage that I've got this spring.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it cuz there's nothing like a good hunting video. Yeah. So hopefully.
0: Even though, well, I shouldn't say nothing was killed on it because I, I did self-film that turkey that I killed in Kansas. But oh, that's like, true. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that turned out very good or not. <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to seeing it, man. Yeah, we'll see. So the last question I have for you actually has to do with video. Have you seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson?
0: Man, I have. It's been a long time ago.
1: Okay, so I'll jog your memory. There's a scene in there where he's – Starving, he hasn't been able to kill anything for for like weeks, and he finds this guy frozen in the snow, and the guy's like holding on to this rifle, frozen in the snow, and there's like a note, and he's like grabbed onto this note and it's wrapped around the gun, yeah, and it says something like, "I killed the bear that killed me. Whoever finds my gun can have it." Yeah, and that's like the pivotal point in the movie where he finally becomes a mountain man and starts you know, killing elk and whatnot. So anyway, uh. Every time I see that, I think about what would my last message be if I had just been mauled by a grizzly bear. So my question to you is, as we wrap up here, if you were just mauled by a grizzly bear on your half marathon, you're lying there. You can write one message to the world. What would that message be?
0: Oh, man. Getting deep. Um, kind of touched on a little bit ago. Honestly, probably live today like you knew you were going to die tomorrow. I mean in all honesty we uh in a blink of an eye we could be we could be gone there's a lot of world out there to see and a lot of things to do and um moving to Montana I think opened my eyes a little bit because I'd born and raised in northeast Kansas and other than some traveling I never really got out much but come out here you see how big of a world there is especially with the amount of traveling that I do um yeah I mean there's just uh don't take life for granted definitely um got to enjoy it while we're here.
1: I love it. So that's perfect. Um, just as we end here, I want to recognize you for all the conservation work that you do. Your service to our, our military is incredible as well as to, uh, kids. And, and, uh, as we talked about, you know, creating diversity in the hunting space is incredible. And I think without people like you, uh, hunting would have a, a bleak, You know, future. But because of people like you, um, I think I think Honey's in good hands, and I appreciate all the mentorship that you've given to me. And you're a a great example to me of uh, you know setting goals, going after those goals, and one day I want to be able to run like you do. So
0: (laughs) we'll have a goal next year of actually filling a turkey tag for you too. That would be sweet. (laughs) I like that. Thanks Uh, for coming on, Jason. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
1: All right, friends, another podcast is in the books. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. For more great content, connect with Urban to Country on social media or on our website, urbantocountry.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a review. Your feedback helps us as we develop content for future episodes. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, make life epic.